Well, we're starting a, a new sermon series today. And as I was thinking through the sermon this week, I was remembering pretty vividly the Sunday that I had to come out publicly as gay from the pulpit. And I thought, well, it's been two and a half years. I can probably talk about it a little bit more now. And some of you remember that was a horrifying time. It had been a horrifying few weeks. I was filled with anxiety. I was having all kinds of panic attacks. And I got really sick that week. I had more than 102 degree fever. And I remember I was sitting with Charles Park. Charles Park is the pastor of the Blue Ocean Faith Church in Manhattan. And we were sitting in a lobby of a hotel over on Carpenter Road as he was in trying to help us through our, our situation. And I was sitting with him and I was just sobbing and I was so sick. And I was just saying, Charles, I don't think I can do this. And in that moment, I felt like God said to me, I felt like he said, you can do this. You don't have to do this, but you can. And if you do, I'll honor you, and I will honor the LGBTQ and their allies who are suffering in this with you. I'll be with you. And so that Sunday morning, as I got up early and I got ready, I had an almost eerie sense of calm and like resoluteness. You know, it's that calm that you get when you know that there's no turning back. Like if you've ever had to turn in like a two-week notice to work. And once you hand that in, you're kind of like, there's no changing your mind. And so I'm feeling that, and as I stood on the stage that morning and I testified to what I felt like God was doing in my life, and I did my utmost to try and honor people across the theological spectrum, I really felt God's presence in a profound way. And I remember sitting, you know, before I went up onto the stage, and I was sitting there and I was just trying to breathe deeply. And I remember saying to God, where are you? Like, I just need to know where in this room you are. Like, I just need that. And I remember feeling like he said, I'm right here. I'm just behind you. I'm with you. And just knowing where he was in the room kind of gave me the strength to get up and to feel like I wasn't alone. And so I haven't really shared that part of my story before. I feel a little bit funny sharing it now. But this week as I was contemplating what it means to experience God as Emmanuel, like Emmanuel is just the name given to Jesus that means God with us. I just kept coming back to that event because of how strongly I experienced Jesus as with me during one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. But that experience of, of talking to God and of sensing him near and trusting my feelings and trusting what I was hearing, that didn't come out of the blue. It was built on a lifetime of learning to know God's voice and learning to trust my own spiritual experiences as well as learning how to discern what seems to be from God and what doesn't. And sometimes I get it wrong, as all of us will sometimes. But Jesus said that his sheep know his voice. And so for me, that means that this whole experiencing God thing, it's not so mysterious that it's inaccessible to us or that it's only available for special people. I mean, I'm certainly more like a sheep and sheep are not the brightest bulbs. So if they can know his voice, then surely we can learn to know God's voice as well. So we're starting a four-part sermon series this week called Making Contact. And we're going to be talking about how we experience God in real time. And we talk a lot about how God is good and accessible and how we want God to guide us, that we have this childlike faith connection with Jesus. But we want to say more practically, how does that happen? And it's, a, it's a, a topic that I can find a little bit hard to talk about as a pastor because, one, it can make me sound a little bit weird, and it can feel intensely personal. But it's, it's like such a core central part of faith as I have known it. And it's a core part of the way of faith in, in the way that I think Ken understands it and our staff and many of you. 
that it's probably weirder not to talk about spiritual experience. So first I'm gonna give you just a little bit of background um, on spiritual experience as it's, as it's sort of seen in the church. So when I was studying at Fuller Seminary a few years back, I remember one of my professors talking about what he called the re-enchantment of the world. The re-enchantment of the world. And what he was talking about was how about a few hundred years ago, the West in particular had lost its sense of the wider world as being sacred and spiritual. Right? That things that were quote-unquote spiritual were thought to be found in churches, in the sacraments, in temples, maybe on mountaintops. And that with the Enlightenment came this certain suspicion of, or maybe even rejection, of spiritual experience as being real. And that coincided with the rise of scientific thought. And I just want to say, like, I love science. I do not see in any way that faith and science are in any sort of clash. But the, that, that mode of scientific thinking was seen as threatening, and it caused people to start to wonder if we could only know what is real if we could quantify it or catalog it or somehow classify it. And everything else was viewed with some sort of super, like as some kind of superstition, it's hard for me to say, or like some kind of crutch that religious people use to help them cope with life or to help them make sense of the things in life that don't make sense. But humans across cultures and time have always described having experiences that seem outside of what's accepted as normal and real. And those experiences didn't go away with the Enlightenment. They just went underground. Either people didn't seek them as much or they ignored them when they happened or they tucked them away as being personal and something that might even be a little bit of a cause of embarrassment if they admitted out loud to others that their spiritual experiences actually shaped their lives and maybe influenced some of their decisions about how to live and be in the world. So when my professor talked about the re-enchantment of the Western world, he was talking about how Western Christianity is in the process of rediscovering its mystical side, which had been alive and well prior to the Enlightenment and which has remained alive and well in the Eastern churches, particularly the Eastern Orthodox. So about 100 years ago, 1906, we had what was called the Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostal movement is widely thought to have started with the Azusa Street Revival, Los Angeles. And that was an experience, a giant charismatic experience where people were saying that they were having these encounters with Jesus and this form of communicating with God started to spread around the world. And it exploded during the last century all the way till now. And you might say that the Pentecostal movement could be understood as like a global protest against this sort of dehumanizing disregard of what constitutes really the essence of our humanity, which is our experience, right? It was telling us that what you're experiencing isn't real. It's not true, you can't believe it. And so today, Pentecostalism is actually the fastest growing religion in the world. So I've traveled to 41 countries or so. I've worshiped with faith communities in a lot of those different places. And I think I can say that there really isn't the same sort of aversion to spiritual experience in most of the world that we find here in the US and in Europe. Like people take their spiritual experiences seriously. So when I was in Western China, I lived in Western China for a few years, one of my Tibetan language tutors, um, we were meeting in my, in my apartment and remember I was sitting on the floor in the living room and we were just having like a regular vocab lesson like we do. And he started telling me about a dream that he had had. And so he told me that in this dream, he had this like burning sensation in his chest. And then he saw a dove that was surrounded by light. It came down and it landed on him. 
And then there was a man standing in front of him who was dressed in white, and he was holding this giant ball of like burning electric white light. And he said that the man was trying to hand him that light and was inviting him to like seek out more what this light meant. And so my tutor, for whatever reason, he sensed in the dream that the person holding that ball of light might be some God named Jesus about whom he had heard some vague descriptions of. And he told me he'd been searching the internet. <laughs> and he'd read some things about Jesus and he discovered something about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is a dove in the Christian faith. And so his question to me, he was suspecting that I was Christian because I'm American. I don't think I'd ever actually told him I was Christian. And he said, okay, I just, so just do you know, is the Holy Spirit a dove that burns you up? And so I asked some clarifying questions and he actually meant like, is it actually a dove that comes on you like flames and literally burns you up? And he was scared, I think, because in the dream, that's what had happened to him. And he said that he'd read something about that on the internet. And I said, well, no, at least I hope not. <laughs> and then we talked about my understanding of God's spirit and how God's spirit is permeating the whole world and it's working to draw humans to a God who is love. And that fire and flames that are associated with the spirit of God, they symbolize God's power and his all-consuming passion for humanity. But that that passion isn't a cause for fear, it's God's declaration of love for us. And that that dove, it symbolizes the inherent peaceful nature of this God. These are common symbols in Christianity. And so he had other, sometimes funny questions for me, which made me think he'd been on some really weird websites. But I mean, I should, one day I'll tell you about some of the Noah's Ark questions, but there was <laughs> good questions. There was a, he was a deeply spiritual Tibetan Buddhist man. I mean, he was Tibetan Buddhist through and through, practicing culturally. And I learned a lot about Buddhism from him. And here he was encountering Jesus in a dream in such a way that he felt compelled to find out more. And what I noted is that the Jesus that he encountered didn't tell him that he needed to just drop everything and convert. And the Jesus he encountered didn't tell him that he needed to ditch his Tibetan culture and come find out how to live from a bunch of Westerners. He didn't tell him he was a horrible person who needed saving. He didn't even tell him that his current religious path was wrong or worthless or anything like. The Jesus he encountered simply invited him to come forward and to seek wisdom and the divine presence of Jesus in his life. Right, that was the invitation, find out more. Kind of like you know, to Peter and the disciples, follow me. And I just think perhaps Jesus is more concerned with people having an experience of and a relationship with him where we're learning to seek and to have this interaction with him than he is about many other things. And then everything else in life gains perspective through that lens, through that relationship, as Jesus deconstructs a lot of the stories that we've all told ourselves about life and about God. And my main point in telling my tutor's story is to say that he had a dream that was out of the normal realm of his belief. In fact, he could have taken some flack in it in his culture. And yet it affected him so much that he took his experience seriously, like it was real, and it was something that was worth finding out more about. It was worth pursuing in spite of the cost. And I say, well, if, as scripture testifies, Jesus is actually risen from the dead. If he's alive and he's accessibly present to us, if he's alive and he actually has active agency and he's eagerly willing to interact with anybody who will follow, why wouldn't we trust such an experience? I think that we can. And that can sound frighteningly subjective. You know, but the reality is, is that Christianity is a form of personal knowledge. 
and experience, right? It's knowledge that's personal because it has to do with people, us, relating to a personal being that we call God. And if Jesus becoming a human teaches us nothing else, it's that Jesus and this God wants to have this relationship with us. It's a personal form of knowing, a relational form of knowing that's the basis of our Christian faith, having a living, breathing relationship with the God who is love. And for better or worse, all of our knowing is mediated through our embodied brains, right? Through our consciousness, through our senses, through our various capacities to perceive, right? There's nothing that registers with us that isn't registered by us in our bodies. And so in that sense, all of our knowing is subjective because none of us can know what it feels like to inhabit anybody else's body. So if there is a God, and this God wants to be known by humans, he's gonna have to speak in a language that we understand, meaning he'll have to be known or make himself known in a way that our brains and our bodies can actually perceive. And what do we have to evaluate the veracity of these experiences besides a lifetime of experience? Right, a lifetime of making little discernments about what is and what isn't reliable in our streams of consciousness, in our imaginations, our impulses, our desires, our voices in our minds, and then acting out on those and seeing what the fruit is and how they work out in the context of a community, a community of people who talk about such experiences as real and learn from one another and check each other. Now, as I was writing this, I was thinking about um, some things that Rachel talks about. My wife, Rachel, is a community mental health therapist. And sometimes when she's describing to me like how it feels for people who are schizophrenic or maybe have bipolar disorder, it just strikes me that it must be really difficult for people whose brains sometimes work differently than many others because they feel like they can't always trust their experiences. They can't trust their perception of reality. But I think, frankly, at times, all of us can be prone to believing things that perhaps are not true. And that's why community is helpful and important when we feel like we're having significant spiritual experiences. And I think that you'll find the more that you connect with others and start talking about it, that there are a surprising number of people who have had such things in their lives. So this Sunday, we're celebrating Epiphany in the church calendar. And Epiphany is the day that the global church remembers the day that the Magi came from the East to visit the newly born baby Jesus. And so for that reason, it's sometimes called Three Kings Day. I had a roommate from Spain, and that's what she called it. And I think that's, I think, Rachel, you said in your Catholic upbringing that you would have to save a Christmas present until Three Kings Day. I don't, did any of you guys have that experience? No, maybe not here, okay. <laughs> but epiphany simply means manifestation or appearance. Right? So it's when Jesus became the manifestation of this God who is love in human form and appeared here on earth as a vulnerable, needy baby. And what we learned from Jesus becoming a human was that he was able to communicate with God using his human body and his human brain, just as we can. I think he came in part to show us that, the, that it can be done. You know, the scriptures tell us that Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. And so it seems that he would talk to this God, you know, whether it was through prayer and meditation when he would steal away to be alone or he would get up early in the morning and go off to pray, and sometimes it seems that he may have even been able to do this in a crowd. And he would just talk to God in his mind, like, what are you doing? Where are you at? How are you working? How can I join with whatever it is that you're doing in this space? The manifestation of Jesus as God with us tells us that we can trust our bodies and the replies that we think that we're receiving from God. So I'm gonna read the Epiphany story. It's Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea and during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who's been born, the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you is going to come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And so he sent them on to Bethlehem, and he said, go and search carefully for that child. And as soon as you find him, come back and report to me that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose, it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and they presented him with the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So we notice in the passage that God communicated to the Magi in a little different way. He communicated them through nature, through the star, as well as through their dreams. And God will communicate with us humans in whatever ways we can understand. Another way that we use the word epiphany in English is to talk about having like a, a sudden flash of insight or understanding. You know, like when Jesus breaks into our world as he did when he was a baby, when he breaks into our minds and he gives us insight or understanding, we might say that's having an epiphany. So Martin Luther, who was one of the great reformers, you guys know Lutherans? Named after Martin Luther. It said he had a lot of epiphanies on the toilet. Maybe some of you do too. <laughs> You know, the Lutherans don't talk about that part of Martin Luther's spirituality so much. But I actually really like the example because to me it shows that God can break through into any part of any day, in any place, at any time, even in the bathroom. Because when Jesus burst into our world, it was in the midst of hay and dirt and blood and feces and animal sounds and smells. An epiphany of Jesus doesn't always make that dirt and that ick go away. Right? Maybe that's another sermon for another time. But the story of Epiphany promises us that God is in us, with us in that worst part. He's with us in the mess, just as he was with me when I had to come out. He didn't make the situation go away, but his presence was thick, and it was at work in ways that I still don't fully understand. And sometimes I feel God's presence most poignantly when I go and visit people when they're dying. You know, it's like the veil between this dimension and the next is just so thin and it feels like God's presence is so palpable in that space as a comfort to those who are suffering. And it's like the suffering doesn't necessarily go away. Sometimes death is the release from the suffering. But God's presence is powerful and it's powerfully with people who are in that space. According to the Bible story, experiencing this Jesus, this Jesus born in a manger, it wasn't reserved for the rich and the powerful spiritual gurus, actually the, the rich and the powerful and the spiritual gurus were threatened by him. It was the unclean Jewish shepherds, the ritually impure, who were told by the angels to come and to visit the newborn child. And it was the Gentile astrologers from the east who were told to come and visit the newborn child. What this is telling us is that this encounter with Jesus, an epiphany, is for everyone. It's not just for the people who are like the faith insiders. 
So let's get to uh, some practicalities here. I'll tell you a story about my, my friend Tom. So, sorry, I've got a really dry throat this morning. Um, some of you may remember hearing A.D. Wassing here, speak here last fall. She's a senior pastor of the Blue Ocean Faith Church in Iowa City. And her husband, uh, his name is Tom, he's a very part-time pastor at that church because he's also a research geneticist and psychiatrist at the University of Iowa. And so Tom's become a really good friend of mine. I enjoy him. And he exemplifies a pilgrimage that I think that many people are taking these days in response to Christianity rediscovering its mystical side. So Tom grew up in the Reformed Church in Western um, Michigan. So many of you know that Western Michigan is like the United States Center for Reformed Theology. And he was a member of First Christian Reformed Church in Holland. And so as a uh, child of the Protestant Reformation, which has traditionally been suspicious of spiritual experience, that's not a universal statement today, but that's what Tom grew up in. He grew up in a church that was suspicious of spiritual experience. And so in his 20s, he was really drawn to the experiential dimension of Pentecostal or charismatic Christianity. But being a scientist, over time, he developed a sort of conflicted relationship to his faith. So he felt like it combined this really powerful mixture of religious experience that was exciting and was vibrant, but that it was mixed with anti-intellectualism and with some magical thinking. And so on the verge of giving up on this experiential dimension of his spiritual quest, Tom encountered the work of a Mennonite psychiatrist in the Chicago area who developed a healing prayer model that seemed to help people who were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And so Tom's clinical curiosity was piqued because he works with veterans who suffer from PTSD. And so the healing prayer method is called Emmanuel Prayer. And the way it works is this. You would select a positive memory, some kind of good memory from your past, and you focus on it prayerfully, and you invite Jesus to be present in that memory. You sort of pay attention. Where's Jesus at? What's he doing? Is he saying anything in this memory? And often this yielded a profound experience of Jesus for Tom as well as for some of the other people that he would pray with. And then later with a trained counselor, one might gently revisit some of their traumatic memories, inviting Jesus to be present also in those traumatic memories. And then you would use the good memory with Jesus, like if the memory became too traumatic, you could sort of use that as an escape pod. Like you go back to the good memory as a safe space and so through positive expectation and prayer and relaxed meditation and using this form of praying, Tom experienced really vivid and deeply affecting visions of Jesus present with him in both the positive as well as in those painful memories as he opened himself to this kind of prayer. And I think he would say that he's experienced a lot of personal healing in it as well. And so today he has a really rich prayer life. I think it's marked by the consoling, guiding, encouraging presence of Jesus through Emmanuel prayer, through his imagination and through his memories. And so this kind of prayer and related ways of meditating on Jesus, I think is a powerful tool that can help a lot of people start to make contact with God. You know, it's why when Ken and I planted Blue Ocean Faith here, when we planted this church, we decided to incorporate silence or some sort of guided meditation at the end of all of the sermons to help us like learn how to do this. We can learn how to do this together. And I'm sure that there are some weeks that the meditations, you know, maybe don't do anything for you and you're thinking about the football game or whatever's going on. <laughs> but then there might be some Sundays where something connects and you feel like maybe you are hearing something from Jesus as we meditate together. And so I'd just say, wait, what if that's real? What if that's as real as real gets? What if we can trust that? 
Now, I know people can hear all kinds of wonky things and think it's from God, but that's why we test out the small bits and we see if we can trust what it is that we're hearing. And that's why we trust a community of people who are hearing with us to see what they think. And a little, a little rule of thumb that I always try and keep in mind is I remember that the word Satan means, means accuser in Hebrew. Satan just means accuser. And the word that's used for the Holy Spirit in Greek, paraclete, means advocate. So if you feel like in these encounters with Jesus, you're constantly hearing like an accusing voice. Like I've talked to people who are like, I feel like every time I talk to Jesus, he's just telling me I'm not doing enough. I'm not reading the Bible enough. I'm not good enough. But that's, I would say, not the voice of Jesus. That's some other voice, like your own voice or something else going on in your head. But if you can remember that Jesus is for us, you know, he can offer us correction, but not accusation. And that his voice is generally comforting and consoling and encouraging. And so I think what Epiphany tells us here as we meditate on it today is that God still breaks through into everyday life just as he burst into the, into the world on this earth 2,000 years ago. And an Epiphany can look many different ways. It can look like what it looked like for my Tibetan tutor, you know, where he saw Jesus in a dream. Or the experience might be one like what I had the day that I had to come out where I intuitively felt Jesus beside me. Or it might look more like what the Magi experienced. You know, the Magi, it was more of a journey where they were following little clues that they suspected might be from something divine and seeking and finding answers along that journey one step at a time. So to close out, we're going to do a little bit of a guided meditation So what we'll do is, it doesn't have to be completely silent. People, babies make noise. We're just gonna spend a little bit of time just focusing on our breathing. Get comfortable in your chair. We pay attention to if there's any stress in your body. Start taking a few deep breaths in and out. help clear our minds, might just say the Jesus prayer. So like on the in-breath, say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, on the out-breath, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And maybe imagine Jesus sitting beside you. Where are you in your mind? Are you outside? Are you here? Are you in your living room? Are you on a beach in Florida? As Jesus is sitting comfortably beside you, think of something in your life that's causing you some anxiety. Be it the news, be it your family or your job. 
Just identify it. something that symbolizes that anxiety in your hand. So it's the news, maybe it's a newspaper or a, a little Putin or something. And just hold it there before Jesus. Just hold it so that he can look at it. Often in the Bible, the psalmist would just say, turn your face toward me, God. We'll just ask God to turn his face toward that situation. And you might just ask help. Maybe just invite Jesus, you know, do you have anything to say about this or some consoling gesture for me? Just invite the divine presence into that space. Now imagine if you can just handing it to Jesus. You may not be able to yet, but if you can, maybe do that. I'm just going to end by praying over us that the peace of God that passes understanding would fill our hearts and fill our minds that this Holy Spirit of the God who is love, who wants to be known, who is permeating this room, who is in our bodies and in our minds, Lord, that we would be able to experience your presence powerfully in this next week. Lord, give us eyes to see where you are in those spaces of suffering and anxiety as well as in the beautiful spaces that we can join you in the work that you are doing in this world. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.